0: Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 42. Last week, I wrapped up with the ninth iteration of A Pharaoh as Ramses, an episode that covered most of the 20th Dynasty. This week, if the episode goes according to plan, I'll finish the 20th and make significant progress into the 21st. During this period, the Israelites had certainly exited Egypt and were settled in Canaan. The Egyptian influence over that region had waned, but the interactions between the groups had not ceased. At a minimum, trade was occurring, as evidenced by the continued importation of goods from each region to the other. So, there's no doubt the Egyptians were in contact with the cast of characters in the Old Testament. But it wasn't like it used to be, at least until the 21st Dynasty which I'll get to late in this episode. So the history covered in the first part of this is more of a survey, and less of a deep dive. In other words, the accelerator is being pressed. And with that, let's get started. Since the last pharaoh of the last episode was Ramses IX, quite naturally, his successor was the Tenth, who ruled from 1111 to 1107 B.C., so just over three years. Overall, little is known about Number 10. It's not even known if Nine was his father. There was some construction, possibly downsized due to the ever-increasing threat of Libyan invaders. And it's getting to the point that they're not really invaders anymore, since many had settled in the Western Nile Delta. And that's not the only indication of dwindling power. He is one of the last, if not the absolute last Egyptian pharaoh mentioned as having ruled over Nubia. After so many episodes, I may have to finally drop the word again when referring to a Nubian insurrection. And given the state of his tomb in the Valley of the Kings, it's clear that the times were indeed turbulent. It's unclear if he was ever buried in his tomb, as there were neither remains nor funerary objects found in it. And that's it. Three years or so condensed down to about a minute. After number 10 was Eleven, who was more well known. Though, like his predecessor, it's still unknown if he was the son of the former ruler. He ruled for close to 30 years, which marks a dramatic shift from the last many Ramses. And that wasn't the only thing. He would be both the last ruler of the 20th dynasty and the last one known as Ramses. And, he was the last ruler of the New Kingdom. With a trifecta of last, you have to know that changes, they are coming. And how do we know so much of this? Fortunately, over the course of the past century or so, many papyri have been uncovered that attest to the great and mundane events of his reign. There were tomb robbers put on trial in the first couple of years he was on the throne. There were also many documents stolen from the Amun Temple archives, documents that would be repurchased in his sixth year. There was also a document that seemed to show property taxes levied on houses. During Eleven's reign came along an official known as Pinhasi, who was likely the viceroy of Cush, and remember that Cush was the same as Nubia. Sometime during the reign of Eleven, and the use of the word sometime is extremely intentional, as there is a great deal of debate concerning the decade, let alone the year. But it was probably between 11th, 9th, and 19th year. Regardless of the exact date, at some point, Pinesi succeeded in temporarily ousting the Theban high priest of Amun from his post. This priest was a man named Amenhotep. The event is sometimes referred to as the war against the High Priest. In essence, it was a coup against the High Priest, and despite the many records from the period, the exact record of what went down is really unclear. Some researchers believe that the Priest and the Viceroy struggled over who would control Nubia, and the Viceroy took his fight to the Temple, and ousted the Priest. Now, others propose that the priests rescued Pinassi from some common enemy, and after a period of lawlessness, apparently Pinassi was chased from Thebes back to Nubia. To be clear, how exactly the insurrection was quelled, and who forced Pinassi out of Thebes, is unknown. Now, he may have remained in power in Nubia, or maybe he just held some power. And this could presumably have only occurred with Ramses number 11's permission. Maybe begrudgingly. Ten years later, the then high priest of Amun, named Pianaki, who at the time was also the viceroy of Cush, led an army into Nubia with the apparent aim to meet a man named Pinhasi. And given the rarity of Pinhasi's name, it was probably the former both viceroy of Cush, and rebel leader. The high priest may have traveled to Nubia to negotiate with Pinasi, either officially, or more probably, off the record, maybe even to plot against Ramses XI. But nothing really came of it. Despite his transgression against the temple, and the likely falling out with the pharaoh, Pinasi would die of old age while still in control of lower Nubia. He was buried in Aniba where a tomb inscribed with his name was discovered. And that alone was better than many of the recent pharaohs. With that out of the way, back to number 11. Around his 19th year, Ramses XI kicked off a sort of New Kingdom renaissance. Or at least he tried to. And while I don't normally shy away from at least attempting, and very frequently slaughtering the pronunciation of all these foreign words and phrases, this one I cannot. Simply cannot, as it lacks any vowels. So, my English-speaking tongue, however tight it sometimes gets, will not cooperate this time. Again. But this time, with a valid reason. The exact nature of the Renaissance is not known. It is often considered to mark final waning of the power of the centralized monarchy, with Eleven still technically pharaoh, but with the high priest of Amun in Thebes ruling Upper Egypt. At the same time, Smendes in Tanis was ruling Lower Egypt. Conversely, the period has been interpreted as marking the restoration of order by Eleven following his expulsion of the viceroy of Cush, aka Pinasi. Either way, it seems to have been an important period to the Egyptians. And remember when I said a few minutes ago that we had a greater understanding of the period when compared to his recent predecessors? Well, that was a relative statement. Moving along. Towards the end of Levin's reign, or maybe very shortly afterwards, Levin had the capital moved to Tanis, downstream, in the northern part of the country. But the shift wasn't just political. At the same time, royals began to be interred near Tanis, and this led to the outright abandonment of a few small villages, and the lessening of importance of Thebes. Sometime during this period of change, Eleven died, under unknown circumstances, at least yet-to-be-determined circumstances. He had previously built a tomb in the Valley of the Kings, but it was left unfinished and only partly decorated since everything was moving north. And this seems to indicate that the planning and anticipation for the move was rather short. The reasons are a real mystery. And his death and burial at Tanis put Egypt in an unenviable political situation. When he died, it was the son of the high priest of Amun, and a political governor named Smendes that presided over the pharaoh's funeral. As you know by now, whoever led the burial service inherited the throne, and with Smendes assuming rule, so began the 21st dynasty, and the Third Intermediate Period. But, Smendes would only rule Lower Egypt, as Middle and Upper would be controlled by the current high priest of Amun, ruling from Thebes and, with a new kingdom done, that puts him squarely into Third Intermediate Period. He would rule for about 25 years from his throne in Tanis. His mother is known, and while I'll spare you her name, or at least my pronunciation of it, she was the chief of the harem of Amun-Re, and probably the wife of a high priest of Amun. Smendez's brothers-in-law were also likely high priests. So, he was politically well-connected, but that wasn't his only connection. His wife was possibly the daughter of Ramses' number 9, and despite this long rule, not much is known of him. He did put down a revolt in Thebes, or it's at least thought he had it put down, as the revolt likely occurred in his final year of rule, so it may have been his successor. After it was put down, the revolt's leaders were exiled to the western desert oasis. They would later be pardoned during the reign of Smeldez's successor, Aminamizu. Now, Aminamizu may have been Smeldez's son, but he would only rule for four years. It's no surprise that we know essentially nothing about him. It wasn't until 1940, when the tomb of his successor was uncovered, That we even learned of his existence. But there had been clues. Manetho did identify a short lived ruler of the 21st dynasty, but as he had a tendency to do, he assigned a completely different name to this ruler. And those exiled rulers of the rebellion, they were not pardoned by the pharaoh, but by the Theban high priest of Amun, but it was during the pharaoh's reign. And that's it. Once again, a few years condensed down to less than a minute. This is why you write down your history. It will be forgotten. Next was Suicens I, the third pharaoh of the dynasty, who would rule for somewhere in the neighborhood of 46 years, the longest reign in generations. He was Ramses XI's grandson, with his mother being Ramses' daughter. It's thought he repaired the relationship with the Theban high priest of Amun, as they donated funerary goods for his tomb. He would add to the great temple at Tanis, and certainly had other accomplishments, but nothing on the record, except that he would claim the title of high priest of Amun in Tanis for himself. Like I mentioned before, his tomb was uncovered in Tanis in 1940, but the tombs of this part of the country were different from those in the Valley of the Kings in one lasting regard, and that's the weather. Tanis is humid, where Thebes is in the desert. Owing to this, most of the wood objects in his tomb had disintegrated. Fortunately, his funerary mask was not wooded, but instead was more durable constructed of gold and lapis loosely with inlays of black and white glass for the eyes and eyebrows. It can be found in the Cairo Museum. And that's not the only part of his tomb to survive. The mummy's fingers and toes were encased in gold compartments of the otherwise wooden coffin. The finger enclosures are the most elaborate ever found, to the point that they had sculpted fingernails. Each finger had an elaborate ring of gold, and Lapis lazuli or some other semi-precious stone. And, he was buried with gold sandals on his feet. His tomb also revealed something else about the times of this period. His outer and middle sarcophagi were apparently recycled from previous burials in the Valley of the Kings. This was essentially state-sponsored grave robbing and was a common practice of this turbulent time. His red outer sarcophagus had originally been made for Pharaoh Merneptah of the 19th dynasty, the successor of Ramses II. His inner coffin appears to be his originally, it was made of both silver and gold. At the time, in this region, silver was rarer, and therefore potentially even more valuable. And, for the first time in several iterations of mummified rulers, we have a post, really, really post-mortem medical examination. He was an old man when he died, no surprise there, especially given his 46-year rule. His teeth were badly worn, full of cavities, and he even had an abscess that left a hole in his palate. He likely suffered from extensive arthritis and was probably hobbled by this condition in his final years. Being old today is bad, but in those times, even the king couldn't escape the trials of time. Suicens was succeeded by Aminamope, who was likely his son. And for the first time in many rulers, it appears that the junior may have served as a sort of co-regent to his father. After his father's death, when he became the sole ruler, he too would claim the title of High Priest of Amun in Tanis. And we do know that this authority was recognized by the Theban priest. Other than that, not many hard facts. Manetho claimed a nine-year reign. Seems reasonable. Amenemope was originally buried in the chamber of a small tomb in the royal necropolis of Tanis. But, a few years after his death, he was moved and reburied inside the chamber once belonging to his purported mother and next to his father. He, too, was uncovered in 1940. Unlike his father, his coffin was wooden, but covered in gold leaf, perhaps signifying a downturn in the Egyptian economy, and his mummy would undergo a medical examination that revealed him to be a stout man who lived to be relatively old. His undoing appears to have been a skull infection, which likely developed into meningitis, Aminamot was succeeded by the seemingly unrelated Azorkan the Elder. Azorkan the Elder was the fifth king of the 21st dynasty, and since this is an intermediate period, you can expect a few surprises. In his case, perhaps the biggest surprise is that he was probably a Libyan. We know very little about him, and what we do know has been uncovered in the past quarter century or so and is the subject of much debate. His rule is estimated to have been about 8 years, and that's about it for him. No tomb, no monuments, no real record. Azorkan was succeeded by Siamun, who would rule for about 19 years. He may have been his predecessor's son-in-law, but unlike Orsicon, he appears to have been fully Egyptian so not likely related by blood to the previous ruler. He did build extensively in Lower Egypt, and is considered the second most powerful ruler of the 21st dynasty, behind Suicens. He doubled the size of the Tanis Temple of Amun, along with building numerous other temples throughout the land. Maybe he had learned from his predecessors' bad examples to keep his friends close, and the priest, closer. He is also pictured smiting his enemies with a double-bladed axe, a specific axe that is also seen in reliefs from the same period in Greece. Some theorize that this relates to the possibly Aegean Sea Peoples being smitten by him, or maybe the Philistines who are thought to be descended from the Sea Peoples. Either way, he's depicted smiting someone with a Greek axe. It's possible that Moon’s original royal tomb has never been located. It's also possible that his mummy is one of two completely decayed mummies found in the tomb of Siasens I. The current thinking is that the original tomb was flooded by the Nile, and when the waters subsided, he was moved. Now for something a bit more on topic. Some archaeologists believe that Siamun was the unnamed pharaoh in 1 Kings chapter 3. This pharaoh gave his daughter in marriage to King Solomon to seal an alliance between the two rulers. In 1 Kings chapter 9, the pharaoh would conquer Gezer and give it to Solomon. And the theorized years of their rules tends to support it. Solomon is believed to have ruled between about 970 and 931 BC and Siamun between 986 and 967. So, there were around three years of overlap. Those researchers who disagree with the theory, well, some at least, think it could have been Siamun's successor who did the conquering and gifting. Which gets me to Siamun's successor, who was the II, and who would rule for about 24 years between 967 and 943 B.C., Now, among researchers, there is a great deal of variation of the length of his reign, ranging from 14 to 35 years, and so it goes with an intermediate period. All of this was while Solomon ruled Israel. He would be the last king of the 21st dynasty. He is also thought to have pulled double duty by not only serving as the pharaoh, but also as the high priest of Amun and besides the great debate over his term in office, not much is known. His successor was Shoshek I, who would rule for about 21 years. He was probably not Suacin's son, and is thought to have been of Meswish ancestry. The Meswish were Libyans who settled in Egypt during the late New Kingdom, probably at Herakiopolis. Prior to his ascension, Shoshek was the commander-in-chief of the Egyptian army, and chief advisor to his predecessor. His son married Suesson's daughter. Osorkorin the Elder, who had been pharaoh a few leaders ago, was his uncle. So, overall, Shoshek was very, very politically connected. He is thought to have been one and the same as Shishak, mentioned in 1 Kings and Second Chronicles. 1 Kings chapter 11 verse 40 reads Solomon sought therefore to kill Jeroboam but Jeroboam promptly fled to Egypt to king Shishak of Egypt and remained in Egypt until the death of Solomon From this we can see that the Egyptians did not get along with Solomon but that's not all we also see great alignment between the historic record and the Old Testament just think back several episodes ago when I covered the dating of the Exodus. So much was still unknown. A couple of centuries later, things start to fall into place. And that's not the only alignment. Second Chronicles chapter 12 reads, In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, King Shishak of Egypt came up against Jerusalem With 1,200 chariots and 60,000 cavalry. A countless army came with him from Egypt Libyans, Sukkim, and Ethiopians. He took the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. And Egyptian records reveal a similar story. What is known as the triumphal relief of Shoshek I, found at Karnak, depicts their god, Amun-Re, receiving a list of cities and villages conquered by the pharaoh in his Near East military campaigns. This list, along with others in Egypt, bear the names of the cities in the region, cities in Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, the Negev, and the Kingdom of Israel. There are also peaks, valleys, and other geographic features of the region inscribed on the walls of the Temples of Amun and Karnak. But the Egyptian records do not record an attack on Jerusalem, despite it being recorded in Second Chronicles. Egyptian records show victories in both northern and southern Judah, but not the middle. So, alignment, but not perfect alignment. But there is a possible explanation And that's that the leaders of Jerusalem capitulated before an attack, so a surrender before a battle took place, and therefore not worthy of being included on an Egyptian list of military victories. And these monuments in Egypt, the ones recording events in Canaan, are the only such records in the country from the period, at least ones that concern foreign exploits in the region. Overall, Shoshek practiced an aggressive foreign policy in Canaan, especially towards the end of his reign. This is known because of the several monuments in Canaan that bear his name, a statue in the Lebanese city of Byblos, part of a monumental stela from Megiddo, in what is today northern Israel, among many others. But he didn't just focus on foreign conquest, He also began a systematic consolidation of power within the country. He would strengthen his authority over Egypt through marriage alliances and appointments. He halted the hereditary succession of the high priest of Amun, and instead he appointed men to the position, most often his own sons or other close relatives. The same practice would be followed by his successors, a practice that would continue for over 100 years. He chose his oldest son as his successor. He made his next oldest son the High Priest of Amun at Thebes, as well as the governor of Upper Egypt and the commander of the army. His third oldest son was assigned as the leader of the army at Herakiopolis in Middle Egypt. After 21 years of rule, he died and was presumably mummified, though his tomb and mummy have not yet been found. And, so little is known of its final resting place, that researchers disagree on even which city it may or may not have been in. But most agree that it would be in the northern portion of the country, perhaps somewhere in the Nile Delta. It's assumed that the tomb would be rich in treasure, presuming it has not been looted and plundered, or flooded. Which is a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up with Shoshek's successor, Azorkan I, and work my way through the 22nd dynasty. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.